Hello, everyone. This is Victor Jackson. Welcome to the Bible Centered Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Bible Centered with Victor Jackson. I hope you guys have been enjoying uh, the series on Matthew. Um, We are in Matthew chapter 4 today, going verse by verse through the scriptures. Um, Please, if you haven't listened to 1, 2, and 3, go back and listen. It's been such an incredible hunger to all the listeners. People are developing incredible Bible habits, listening to the word first thing in the morning, and uh, getting some uh, expository teaching out of it. The gospel of Matthew, remember the gospel is the Greek word evangelion, which is the good news, the military term, which through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that that is the good news, the military term, which takes the prisoners out of darkness and brings them into light. Matthew's writing to the Jews to persuade them that he is that that Jesus is the Christ and that he is not just the savior of a select group of people and the Jews, but he is the savior of the world. Last week or yesterday, rather, we talked about John the Baptist's ministry and the precursors to glory. Now I want to get into uh, the next chapter, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, reading from the ESV. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, 
The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Last scripture, verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Um, I love this chapter because Matthew is building a case concerning the legitimacy of Jesus' ministry, that not only was he endorsed by John, but also his ministry has been processed through the wilderness, through opposition. And Matthew is presenting to the Jews that Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, was not something that came out of nowhere, but it was something that was tested and tried. He is persuading the Jews that Jesus is the Christ and that he's the Savior of the world. And he is very strategic with how his ministry starts because what he's showing here is that it was not rushed, but it was processed. It was processed by his own wilderness experience, number one. And it was processed by being tempted by the devil. And this is important to grasp because we ended chapter three by the words from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well, Matthew chapter four, verse one says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is, this is important um, because the spirit affirms him, says, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. And then the next verse says that the spirit led him into the wilderness. Now, Mark is a little bit more forceful with his language because he says that the spirit drove him into the wilderness. Now, now you have to catch this point starting in verse one that, that, 
God says, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. And the next verse says, then the spirit driveth him into the wilderness or the spirit led him up to the wilderness. Sometimes the spirit will drive you into a rough place when he's pleased with you. Sometimes the spirit will drive you into a wilderness of isolation and loneliness, not because he's mad, but because he's pleased. Sometimes your opposition is a sign of God's approval. The spirit drove him into resistance. The spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the opponent, the accuser. So just because you're in a fight doesn't mean that God isn't pleased. Just because you're in a battle doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. Just because you're in a storm, it doesn't mean you don't have a relationship with God. Many times storms come to those that are close to God. Sometimes your storm is your opportunity. See, some people, they give up on their relationship with God because, because they think that, they're, that they disappointed God. Because God affirmed that I'm pleased with you, and the first thing that happens is resistance. Is the first thing that comes. You you try to you you leave the prayer and God tells you to fast, you decide to fast. As soon as you go to your job, the first thing they do is offer you free donuts. Your job never offers you free donuts, but what what happens now you face resistance to test, here it is, the faith that you confessed. When God speaks something over your life, there will be tests that come that help you to build character to walk in the dimension of that call. But just because God's pleased doesn't mean that you are storm-proof or wilderness-proof. When God is pleased with you, he will allow testing to happen to see how serious you are about the affirmation that he gave. Uh, So he was led up by the spirit into the wilderness. He hears the voice, I'm pleased. Next verse, he's in the wilderness. Isn't that life? We get this confirmation, we get these prophecies, we get these, these promises from God, and the first thing that comes is the wilderness. The first thing that comes is Satan's test. But Satan's test does not mean what God spoke to you is not real. And just because you're in a wilderness or battling with temptation, it just doesn't mean that God is not pleased with you. The spirit drove him into the wilderness. He had to go there. Why did he have to go there? This is important. Uh, He is the son of God. Therefore, he must pass the test that Israel failed. Are you getting it? Israel failed the test in the wilderness. Remember, they had to walk in circles for 40 years because of their disobedience, not wanting to go into the promised land. And what Jesus came to do is win the test that 
they failed in the wilderness. They searched out the land for 40 days, the promised land. And they came back with an evil report and said, we can't do this. So God said, for every day that you searched out the promise, that's going to be a year added to you in the wilderness until that generation dies off. They failed the test. Only Caleb and Joshua had a good report. They failed the test. Now, remember, they they went and searched the promised land for 40 days. So look what Jesus does. For 40 days, he's in the wilderness being tempted, and, and he is going to pass the tests as the son of God that Israel failed when they were in the wilderness. And you're going to see this point become more clear. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now Matthew is making sure that he appeals not only to the divinity, his godness, but he also appeals to his humanity here, that he is human and he is hungry. The Bible says in verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, God just affirmed that he was the son of God and Satan comes to question the authenticity of the affirmation. And he tries to provoke an insecurity uh, to make him operate in his gifting out of time. Not only out of time, but to operate in his gifting uh, to gratify self instead of the mission of saving the world. He was wanting him to use his gift to feed himself instead of feed the world. You see, he asked for him to make the stones become loaves of bread, but Jesus was focusing on later him feeding thousands with five loaves of bread and two fishes. See, Satan wants you to use your anointing and your giftings on yourself. When God puts an anointing on you and a calling on you, it is for the mission to help others. But he wanted to do two things, use his gift outside of timing. He's still in process. He's still in pain. He's still in the wilderness. He's still being tested. And Satan wanted him to step out of time and use his gift in a season he wasn't supposed to use it. He, he wanted him to look for some type of ease. He, he wanted him to not feel the, the full weight and the cost and the price of sonship. And he wanted him to use his gift to gratify himself. But Jesus would pass this test. So later, instead of him turning the stones to loaves of bread, later he feeds 5,000 with the loaves and two fishes. 
that this is bigger than him. And he understood that. He answered with the word of God, verse four, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This this is important because this was a, a, a quote from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy in the, in the Torah. This was a quote whenever Israel... Uh, talking about Israel in the wilderness. He says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he's quoting there Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Because you have to look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, because this is the setting in which Jesus is is using his authority to combat the devil. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. It says, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to test thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Jesus is quoting from this passage because they didn't pass the test. See, the wilderness is a testing place. The wilderness is the place where God uh, sees if you hold on to your integrity. What you confessed in the light, do you live in the night? When you confess before others, do you live it when you're by yourself? He said, I brought you into the wilderness to try you, to prove you, to see what was in your heart, if you would obey my commandments or no. The wilderness is a trying space of a wasteland where God wants to know how serious you are about your confession. So he quotes from here. He grabs his authority from the passage. This is where they failed. Over and over in the wilderness, Jesus is is winning where Israel was failing. Then the devil, verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, Satan brings him up to the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, Many believe that this was more of a vision. And and, uh, a vision later, possibly with the high mountain, there is still debate. Theologians are debating whether this was a physical occurrence where it says he he took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple 
or if this was just a vision uh, that was happening in the wilderness. There's still debate on that. But he said, if if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And so he now he's wanting to use his authority just for uh, any reason, you know, just to tempt, uh, just to tempt God, uh, just to uh, tempt it. But this is an issue because he Satan is quoting scripture out of context. You know, it, it's it's amazing how Satan tried to manipulate the word. He, he tried to manipulate the word. You see, it's impossible for Satan to live the word, so all he can do is manipulate the word. But he says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. This is another passage from Deuteronomy. So Jesus is, is being Israel personified and winning where they lost. That's what he does when when it says he's the second Adam. See, the first Adam failed in the garden, but the second Adam wins in the garden. He is the second Adam. He is, he is the second Adam living as Adam and winning where Adam was losing. That's powerful. And he did it all for mankind. Again, verse, verse 8 Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, number one, Satan doesn't own any of these things. But look at the future tense in his voice. This this shows that he doesn't have the power. He said, all these I will give you. Now, if he had power like he's talking, he would have said, all, all these things I have and can give to you. I have this now, take it from me. He doesn't say that. He says, I want you to worship me now and I will give this later. He doesn't have the authority. Satan just talks a big game. He can't back it up. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is another quote for Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter six. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering unto him. Now, it's, it's amazing that Satan is trying to get Jesus to take a shortcut to being over all of these kingdoms. He tries to present a more viable or a more beautiful opportunity to, to be successful and to fulfill God's will, a shortcut, a, a, a path where there's less pain. But Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. 
but Satan was trying to find a way for him to get what what God promised, yet a shortcut without pain. Any is not worth having if it's not worth dying for. It's not worth having if it's not worth fighting for. It's not worth having if it's not worth sacrificing for. And what I love about Jesus, and we talked about this tonight at Bible Center of Orlando, that whenever Jesus was on the cross, they tried to give him vinegar and gall. And that was to ease the pain. And the Bible says that Jesus tasted it and he refused it. He did not want to ease the pain. He wanted to feel the full weight of suffering on that cross for us. I'm so thankful for a God that doesn't take the shortcuts. I'm so thankful for a God that's willing to pay the price. You know, people say, pay attention, pay attention. Well, Jesus paid the ultimate price of attention. What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? God's mind was so full of man. His attention was so full of man that it led him to come and visit man in an earthly body. He paid attention. Attention costs something. And for Jesus, attention costs everything. I'm so thankful for God that's willing to give all. And because he gave all, he expects our all. Even to his last dying breath, he's extending salvation to a thief on a cross. Isn't this incredible? Isn't this amazing? He didn't take shortcuts. I'm telling everyone listening here, whatever God has called you to do, whatever he is pushing you to do, I'm going to ask you, don't take the shortcuts. Pay the price. Pay the full price for it. It is worth it. It may hurt. It may be painful, but it is worth it. Satan will always try to uh, find a way to make you not go to the cross. Hey, you don't have to pray at that time. Hey, you don't have to read that much. Hey, you don't have to do this, do that, do this, do that. He always tries to show you an easy way. But as I've said often, I'd rather be on the rough road going somewhere to be than to be on a clear road going nowhere. I'd rather go through something but get something than to go through nothing but get nothing. I, let I remember whenever I went through a, a, this season when I was working on a golf course. Listen, I wish I had pictures for y'all. Y'all, I was working on this golf course, and. I gave up basketball, so I'm working, living paycheck to paycheck, barely surviving, working from four in the morning till about three in the afternoon. Miserable, lost 15 pounds. It was so hot on that golf course. And I, I remember, and this is this is funny because I was working so hard and no doors were opening. You know, God told me he was going to, going to do this and do this and do that for me. And all I was left with was just straight up 
you know, storms, you know, uh, attacks. I, I was just going through it, losing friends, you know, uh, I mean, me and the family weren't doing well, uh, you know, people shunning me. It was a bad experience. And um, I remember just crying out to God uh, just on the golf course, just praying and just, just you know, seeking after him. And I remember uh, the church had a VBS and they wanted volunteers. So I said, you know what, let me volunteer. And I said, man, I might as well do something. I'm going to get everything I can out of this wilderness experience. And I remember the character, the only character they had left, you guys are about to laugh. The only character they had left was Raggedy Andy, which was Raggedy Ann's brother. So I dressed up with with overalls, with red red uh, uh, hair, uh, uh, red locks, uh, uh, red cheeks, you know, freckles, uh, to go and be with these kids doing a recorder class for VBS. And there is a picture out there somewhere. Um, but I was so much into this wilderness that I said, I've got to get everything out of it. I remember after that, I was seeking God and things were just getting worse and worse and worse. And there was like no end in sight. Finally, I went into the prayer room. I said, God, don't take me out of this process too early or too quickly. But God, you just make sure that when I come out of this, I come out of it in the power of the spirit. I said, I don't want a shortcut, but however long this is going to last, you just make sure I come out with power. And there was a peace that settled in on me because I said, I'm not going to uh, finagle my way out of this process. I'm not going to try to move my way or, or shortcut this process. However long it takes, I yield God. But you have to promise me when I come out, I come in the power of the Holy Ghost. And that's exactly what happened. My, my test lasted three years. I came out in the power of the Spirit. And once a year, God will bring me into that place again, the testing period, for about a month to make sure I never forget the source. And that's what everything was. Satan was trying to make the source be something else other than God. But, but but what happened is that Jesus reflected a dependency that Israel didn't have whenever they were in the wilderness. And, and Jesus doesn't worship Satan, but the children of Israel in Exodus, they were worshiping the golden calf. They were worshiping the golden calf. And so Jesus passed where Israel failed. And Matthew is showing these nuances here. He's very strategic about showing this. When you when you hear the wilderness and and the uh, in the Israel's culture and language, the wilderness they always think of uh, of the Passover and and the before the Promised Land. And, and Matthew is intentionally alluding to these things to reflect to them that their hope is in Christ, their hope is in Jesus. 
and where they failed in the past, Jesus has passed for us. So the devil left them and the angels came and they ministered unto him. I'm so thankful in the wilderness. Mark mentions Satan, angels, and the wild beast. I'm thankful that in, in the wilderness that at least there's some supernatural there to help me. That I'm not alone, but there is a supernatural element there. Now we had, he had heard, verse 12, now we had, he had heard that John had been arrested. He withdrew into Galilee. Now, this is so interesting to me because KJV says, now when Jesus had heard that John was cast in prison, he departed into Galilee. It's amazing how Jesus waited till John was arrested before he really started his ministry. Because John, John had to come up off the scene lest it looked like there were competing ministries. John was powerful. John was powerful. And remember later they said, hey, John's disciples are baptizing and yours are baptizing. John's disciples are fasting and your disciples aren't fasting. So if John would have stayed on the scene any longer, there, were, there would have been some type of friction, not between Jesus and John, but with their followers. But as soon as John is cast into prison, it, it represented a transition for Jesus to get started. And this is profound because verse 13 states, that in leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. Now, uh, in Capernaum, one of the places he would stay was Peter's house. Now, this is interesting because there came a moment where he left Nazareth to go and live in Capernaum. Nazareth, remember, was a rejected place. It was an obscure village. But Capernaum... It was large. It was uh, the, like a fishing center. Uh, thousands of people would be there. It was, it was a broader realm. It was a greater height. It was greater impact. But, but Jesus had to have the courage to leave Nazareth. That, that even though he would be called a Nazarene, listen, he understood that Nazareth was a season. That's not my identity. I'm going to talk to somebody here. I may have started small, but I don't have to stay small. I, I'm going to Capernaum. I'm going to greater things. I'm going to broader territory. I'm going to bring this message to, to a bigger space. I love you, Nazareth, but but. I was not destined to live my whole life in Nazareth. Nazareth was a season, but that's not my identity. I've got to minister to somebody that's listening right now. Uh, just because you've been abused, that, that might have been a moment, but that's not your identity. Just because you were raised with a single parent, uh, that may have been a moment in your life, but that's not your identity. See, Nazareth is not your identity. It's a season. 
I may be called a Nazarene, but I don't have to live in Nazareth. I'm going to Capernaum. See, because when you're raised around a bunch of Nazarenes that are from the same obscure village, no one expects anyone in the camp to do good or to do great things. And so what happens when someone has a gift or an ability on the inside of them, they are scared to go to Capernaum for fear of betraying Nazareth. I'm going to minister to somebody here. And people will hide their gifts. Come on, somebody. To please the crowd, please their peers. Because they feel if the gift goes to greater heights, it, it, it makes Nazareth look bad. You feel like you're betraying the Nazarenes. And what, what does your peers say in Nazareth? Oh, you too good for us now. Oh, you big time. Oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. Your business is doing good. Oh, your ministry doing good. Oh, don't forget about us now. Don't forget about us now. He had to have the courage to leave Nazareth. That I love you. I'm from here, but I don't have to stay here. Because even later when he does all the miracles and he comes back to Nazareth, Nazareth is the one place he can't do any many mighty works because of their unbelief. Nazareth wants you to stay there and stay there just, you know, not doing anything, not walking in destiny, not walking in calling. He had to have the courage to go to broader spaces, to Capernaum. And Capernaum, there would be Jews and Gentiles. You see, Nazareth just wanted to keep it something small. Just, hey, this is just our thing. This is just our thing. It's small. Hey, we're rejected. Hey, remember, we'll never do anything big. But Nat, but Jesus had a kingdom inside of him that could not just be restrained to a select group of people in the Jews, but he needed to go to Capernaum where there were Jews and Gentiles. He had a responsibility in the kingdom to broaden his net. I'm going to Capernaum. I, I, I love you, Nazareth, but but I can't I can't stay small. I can't I can't just just talk about the good old days when we and just hanging out under under the tree and just talking. There's a kingdom on the inside of me, and my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. I must work the works of him that has sent me while it is day, for night cometh when no man can work. And so he was raised in Nazareth, but he didn't stay in Nazareth. He went to Capernaum, and Capernaum became the base of his, his ministry. And it, and it opened up the doors to the Jews and the Gentiles. If he would have stayed just preaching in, in Nazareth, then, then the message dies. But he had to go to broader territory. So, so what happened to him, Nazareth is for a season, is not for a lifetime. I'm, t I'm telling you. I'm, I'm telling you, you're not defined by what happened in Nazareth. Have the courage to go to Capernaum. Have the courage to influence and go beyond the comfortable. He came to Capernaum upon the seacoast. 
in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. See, the, 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 the message is greater than, than anything that you can imagine. And, and the Gentiles needed this word. And what Matthew is showing is that Jesus would not stay in the obscurity of Nazareth, but his mission was to the Jews first, but also to the Gentiles. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He just picks up where John left off. You see the continuity. John's in prison, but now there's still a voice that's declaring, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're preaching the same message. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, this is an important, important concept to understand as a disciple, is that these disciples, these first disciples, you have to catch this. They are fishing. And he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Meaning the very goal of a disciple is to follow Jesus. But I'm afraid our generation, we get more focused on our purpose than we do his person. And you cannot get purpose without his person. See, people are trying to skip Jesus and get straight to purpose, but you can't find purpose without going to Jesus. You see, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Meaning if you follow me, I will make you into what you are called to be. If you follow me, I will make you into what you are supposed to be. You leave the, the making up to me and you leave the following up to you. You follow, I'll make. Whatever God has called you to be, whatever God has called you to become, it is always going to be attached to the principle of following him. Follow me and I will make you. I will make you into what I have ordained you to be. I will make you into what you are called to be. I will make you into the purpose. I will fashion you. But, but all I need you to do is follow me. You follow, I'll make. And that's it. That, that even the within in the threads in the foundations of evangelism that that I will make you fishers of men so you can't be an effective witness without following him 
See, witness, we witnessing the people, we it cannot be just from some methods that we learned on, on YouTube or a book somewhere. Somewhere there has to be a sensitivity of following him. We cannot be effective soul winners and effective uh, 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 impacts on our community without following him. Everything is connected back to him. I am the vine and ye are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear fruit. So so evangelism doesn't work without him. Church doesn't work without him. Singing doesn't work without him. Preaching doesn't work without him. And and there are people that, that preach and sing that once followed him, but when they stop following him, they still have the gifting, but the gift isn't working properly because they've stopped following. I'm going to help somebody. And this is what the writer said when he said, people have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof from such turn away. They still have the form, but but they lost the connection. Have you ever noticed someone preaching that used to be anointed and you notice they're still they're still shouting, they still have the same mannerisms, they still have the same vocal inflections, but the issue is the anointing's left and the anointing has left because somewhere they kept the form but they stopped following. You ever seen that with singers that used to be anointed and and they still know how to do the runs and still know how to hit the notes and they still know how to go up and down and all of this. They still know how to connect with people and connect with the audience. But the problem is the anointing has lifted. They, they, They still keep the form, but they stop following. And the only way for that unction to come back is to get back to following. Follow me and I will make you. I followed God and he made me into what he wanted me to be. That's the secret. So the pressure of making isn't on us. It's on him. All we have to do is follow. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That's it. That's a disciple. Watch this. Look at their ready obedience. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. I don't think we understand the magnitude of what just happened here. James and John are working with their dad. It's their dad's business. Jesus tells them to follow him. And they left their dad's business and started following him. Do you understand how that dad had to feel? The dad was training them to take over the company for them, for him. But now this rabbi comes walking and interrupts the entire business plan, interrupts the entire business model, that there are eternal things more important than making money. And 
you would see this in the psyche of of uh, Zebedee, of James and John's father. You would see the psyche because it was a business oriented family. This is why. So 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 they go walk with Jesus, and for three and a half years, they don't go back and work with Dad. Guess what? Most likely, Dad's business is suffering because he lost two of his best workers. This is important when you read the Bible. You want to get into the psyche and the emotions of the people. Watch this. This is what influenced James and John's mom later when she went to him and said, Lord, I have a request of you. Let my son sit on your right hand and on your left hand when you enter into your kingdom. And the Bible says that the disciples were mad whenever they brought that up and they started questioning among themselves who's the greatest. You see, see what, what the mom did, why would she ask them to sit next to him in the kingdom? What the mom did was like, listen, you took my boys from me. It better be worth the journey for what they left behind. The business is suffering. We lost two of our best workers. I want to make sure there's a payoff. I got to get something out of this for what they left behind. Isn't that amazing? She said, let James and John sit on your right and left when you enter into your kingdom. Because they left behind so much in this world, I I need a guarantee of something in heaven. But Jesus said, it's not mine to give. They're going to have to drink the cup that I that I am going to drink. But that's what initiated that request. That, that, that they were suffering some type of loss and some type of adjustment and transition with their business. And, and the mom was trying to project that on Jesus. Like, hey, they need to be just... What, what James and John were to their father, I want James and John to be to you in your kingdom. And it's not how it, it works. The kingdom doesn't work like a business. You see, because the way up is down. If you want to be the greatest of all, be servant to all. This is what happened in Acts when they said, these are the guys that turned the world upside down. It wasn't just upside down as far as doctrine, but it was upside down principles. If you want to be the greatest, be servant to all. And she was approaching the kingdom with that same business mindset that they had with the fisherman business. And it's just not going to work. There's just going to be frustration. Amen. Isn't that profound? But you see the motivation behind her doing that and and I had to have a wake-up call whenever I left basketball whenever I uh, left basketball uh, I I figured that you know I would just pray and fast and and go 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 I thought everything was like uh, performance driven and God brought me to a screeching heart a screeching halt to show me hey this isn't basketball just because you work hard, it doesn't guarantee 
uh, that you, you're going to speed up my plan or anything of like that. No, the only way to grow is to abide in me. You focus on following me. I'll focus on making you. You focus on spending time with me. I'll take care of the rest. You can't even uh, make one of your hairs gray. You can't even add one inch to your stature. So you just focus on spending time with me. I'll take care of the rest. And that's where I got the thought. Uh, measure your success by your devotion, not by your opportunities. Everything has to come back to God. And I, I was trying to put this 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 basketball thing on God, and it just wasn't working. No matter how hard I worked, no matter how much I fasted and prayed, no matter what, it, it wouldn't speed up the process of him opening doors for me because I was approaching it with a secular mentality. And God had to break me down in the wilderness on that golf course to show me that without him, I can do nothing. I can be nothing. No matter how much I pray, no matter how much I fast, no matter how much I study, no matter how many souls I win, I cannot manipulate God's hand. I just need to abide in him and trust that he knows what he's doing. And, and I thank God for that lesson. It was brokenness that taught me this. It was brokenness that taught me this. Only, only God could, can, can lift up and cast down. But she approached the kingdom the same way they approached the fisherman business. She was wanting him to be James and John to be the right hand and the left hand, just like they were to their dad. But this was different. Jesus is saying, we're not building a family business. We're building kingdom. And it provoked a strife between the disciples because they were trying to determine among themselves who's the greatest. But she was like, hey, they left all that behind and they need to do the same thing here. I don't want them following with these other 10. Like they're just a part of the crowd. They need to be up front. And it spoke, it, it provoked a strife among them. But following him will always lead you on the path of servanthood. It'll always lead you on the path of servanthood. Verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Matthew starts showing that, that people were coming from the north, the south, the east, and the west. The northeast, the southeast, the, the northwest, and the southwest. Jerusalem uh, being a type of center point. And he is teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Why is Jesus doing all these miracles? See, people think that God just does miracles to do miracles, but but here's what he's doing here. He's doing miracles to help and assist them into revelation of who he is. God does a miracle for one reason, and that is for you to discover who he is. It is to provoke a relationship. That's the entire reason. He would do miracles so people would come into revelation and understanding of who he is. And the people were uh, oppressed. They were tormented. They had disease. They were possessed with devils. Uh, they They were being tormented. And Jesus starts healing immediately. And they're coming from all over the place. The Kapolis, it literally means 10 cities. And there was a lot of Gentile prominent uh, cities within those 10 cities. And, and so it was Jews and Gentiles being healed. And he's teaching in, in the synagogues, that's the Jews, but he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So he, he, he's primarily coming to the Jews, but his healing ministry is going outside of the synagogue and it's healing the Gentiles. And his fame spread everywhere. They were carrying the, uh, the sick. They were, they were carrying them there and and the Bible says in verse 25, and that great crowds followed him. In, in uh, verse 25 in the KJV, it says, and there followed him great multitudes. Now, you got to look at the Greek word here when it says multitude. And this is, and this is, uh, this is where, where I'm heading. I'm talking about the journey of a disciple here. Is that there is a difference between a multitude and a disciple. And, and this is the note that, uh, that I'm wanting to end on. There's a difference between a, a multitude and a disciple because a, a, a multitude, it, it literally is the Greek word. It literally means a disorganized crowd or a riotous crowd. That's, that's what a disciple, uh, that's what a multitude is, a disorganized crowd, a riotous crowd. Now, a disciple is someone that takes upon the teachings of their teacher and lives it out and reflects the teachings of the teacher in their actions, in their behaviors, and in their lifestyle. So so he's calling them to be disciples. And so those that are closed become disciples because they are reflecting his teachings. But those that are following at a distance, they're multitudes. They are disorganized crowds. A disciple is disciplined that they are saying no to everything else and choosing to walk under the teachings and instructions of their master, of their rabbi. But a multitude is a disorganized crowd that ebbs and flows, that has no level of strong commitment 
And this is why as Jesus' ministry would grow, we would see multitudes come, but the disciples, um, you know, he fed 5,000 Jews, he fed 4,000 Gentiles, um, but by the time he gets to the cross, there's about three disciples after he resurrects, he's seen the 500, only 120 people show up to the upper room to receive the spirit in Acts 2, Acts 1 and 2. So after three and a half years of ministry, there's only 120 disciples out of the thousands upon thousands that he healed and that he uh, transformed yet only 120 show up because there's a difference between the multitudes and the disciples. You see, a multitude will just follow whatever the flavor of the month, but a disciple is reflecting the teachings of their rabbi daily in their lifestyle, in their interactions. And what people have to understand, yes, these people were healed, but what we have to understand is that a miracle is not sufficient to keeping a relationship healthy. I'm, I'm going to help somebody here. The church isn't built on miracles. We believe in miracles. The church isn't built on healing. We believe in healing. The church isn't built on discernment. We believe in discernment. The church isn't built on the gifts of the spirit. We believe in the gifts of the spirit. The church isn't built on the concept of love, although we believe in love. The church isn't built on any of those things. The church is built upon Jesus Christ. It's built upon Jesus Christ. It's built upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the only one that can transform our heart. This is why I wanted to take our church through the gospel of Matthew and we've been in Matthew for a year and four months. This is why I wanted to take our church through Matthew, because before I got to the epistles and the behaviors, I had to let them know what the foundation of Christian behaviors come from, and it comes from Christ. I had to show them that Jesus is the foundation. And when we started our church, I wanted them to know that nothing else matters if Jesus is not the foundation of everything that we do. He has to be... Uh, uh, the the fabric and and the the oil that that makes everything flow. Years ago, someone came up to me and said, "Man, in my country, man, we have so many miracles and miracles and miracles." And they were trying to, in a sense, discredit uh, the United States uh, for maybe not seeing as many miracles. And he said, "And he said, yeah, we see so many miracles." I said, "Let me ask you a question: Do people backslide in your country?" And they said, and they said, oh, oh, yeah, they do. I said, because a miracle isn't sufficient to keep a soul. The only thing that can keep a soul is Jesus. And while the multitudes were coming for the loads and fishes and coming for the miracles and coming for all of these things, it was only the disciples that made it to the upper room. I'm talking to somebody. I don't know about you, but I'm trying to make it to the upper room to receive power from on high. And I can only do that by taking on Jesus' teachings and living it out. 
But if I'm ebbing and flowing in a disorganized nature as the multitudes are, then, then I'm just getting loaves and fishes. I'm getting a miracle every now and again. I'm getting deliverance every now and again. I'm getting healed every now and again and all of these things. But, but a disciple has the teachings that no matter in the ups or downs, I'm following him. I will bless the Lord at all times and his praises shall continually be in my mouth. I will worship God though he slay me, yet will I trust him. When everything's going right, I'm going to serve him. When everything's going wrong, I'm going to serve him. In the ups, I serve him. In the downs, I serve him. My conditions around me do not reflect, uh, do not change my behaviors. My behaviors are consistent. That's a disciple. That's a discipline. That's a narrow path. That's a narrow way. And and we have to talk about this because when he's calling these disciples, he's calling them to a life of commitment. They left their occupations. They left their job. Some of them left their families to follow after Jesus. The obedience, the the call to obedience is, is a beautiful call. And out of obedience comes revelation. Out of obedience comes relationship. Out of obedience comes fruit. So Jesus' name is spreading everywhere, but you're going to see tomorrow when we talk on Matthew 5 that when he saw the multitudes, he went into a mountain, and when he was said, his disciples came unto him. So you see that? He saw the multitudes, so he went into a mountain, and the disciples came to him. See, the multitudes didn't come on the mountain. I'm trying to talk to somebody. The mountaintop is only for disciples, but we're going to talk about that tomorrow. The mountaintop is only for disciples. It's not for the multitude. They're too disorganized. And when you're on a mountain and you're disorganized, you're dangerous. When you're on a mountain and you're riotous, you're dangerous. But a, but a disciple has the discipline to come to the mountain. And we will talk about that tomorrow. But Matthew is showing that Jesus' ministry has been tried and proven by the wilderness, by Satan's attack. He, he, he survived that. He passed where Israel failed. Then he gets into his ministry and his preaching and how disciples start coming and multitudes start following. And that he taught but he had power as well, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He was giving them a taste of the kingdom, that in the kingdom there is no there 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 is no the no sickness. And in, in in heaven there is no there is no torment. There are no diverse diseases. Uh there, there is no palsy, there is no par- paralysis or paralytics. And so he is bringing the kingdom down into where they are and show them here is a taste of the kingdom. And, and this was, he confirmed his word with signs following. And, and, and this is the proof of, of one of the proofs of Jesus' ministry. And that's why he would say later, if you don't believe me, just believe me for the work's sake, because the works are supposed to lead you to me. That's the only reason why miracles happen is to lead people to Jesus. But I've seen Jesus healed blinded eyes and, and those people never come back to God. They, they just leave God. 
I've seen people, God heal people, and they never came back to God because you know, a miracle is free is an invitation for you to know him and discover him and follow him. And that's the powerful thing about blind Bartimaeus, that he not only got healed, but the Bible says he followed him. That's the miracle. The a miracle is incomplete until someone makes the decision to follow. The completion of a miracle is when someone chooses to follow Jesus. So if someone just gets healed without coming to the revelation and understanding of coming into relationship with Jesus Christ and following him, the miracle is incomplete. The miracle is only completed when your hand joins with God's hand. And I know that you've been thankful for everything that God has done for you. Don't let go of his hand because on that journey, there's going to be great revelation, great power, great understanding, great blessings, and it's all going to stem from your relationship with him. Matthew is setting the tone for the Beatitudes. He's getting to one of the prominent discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. And he brings Jesus, he speaks of Jesus being on the mountain to, to make the image be in the Jews' mind of Moses being on the mountain. But a greater than Moses is here, a greater than Solomon is here, a greater than Jonah is here, Jesus Christ. My word, the word of God is amazing. I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope uh, that this has been a blessing to you. But we're getting into the popularity and the distinction between Jesus' ministry and the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes' ministry. And we're getting into the popularity of his ministry. So we're going to see a lot of miracles. But about Matthew 16, we're going to see a shift because he's going to mention that he has to die in the cross and that it's going to shift the persecution is going to lift, uh, is going to come even more toward him after Matthew 16 is going to culminate uh, with the cross in Matthew 27. And so Matthew is taking the Jews on a journey on the life of Jesus and showing showing his power, showing his speech, showing, showing the distinction and how he didn't come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. Leave a comment, leave a question. Um, let me know if this is a blessing. Share it with your friends and your family. Thank you so much for joining. God bless. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, for more information, you can follow my social media page, Victor M. Jackson, or you could come visit us in Orlando, Florida at Bible Center of Orlando. Thank you for joining us. God bless.